Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast. Helping you invest in property for freedom, choice and profit. You'll learn new, innovative and multiple streams of property income. Whether you want to start, scale or systemize. And even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author and Property Investor. And this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And if you've been listening for any while, you'll know that I'm currently working through a whole stack of questions which I've been collecting over the last 12 months, and I'm answering them question by question, which I hope you're finding useful, interesting, and maybe even inspiring. We will see, hopefully so. So I've got a whole stack of questions here for this episode, and so let's, without further ado, start ploughing our way through them. And the first question is, should I buy property abroad? Interesting question. Should I buy property abroad? Now, if you're familiar with Progressive and if you're familiar with our trainings, you'll know the answer to that, or at least you'll think you'll know the answer to that. Because if you're familiar with the reason model, which we talk about, and it's the reason model which defines the type of properties which we shouldn't be buying, you'll know that the A in reason stands for abroad. In other words, do not buy properties abroad. And on the face of it, that is really, really good advice. Why do I say that? Well, because I've got to confess, in the day, back in the day, before I came across Progressive, I bought properties abroad, or at least I didn't actually buy them, but I lost money putting deposits down on properties which I was going to buy abroad. And that was very, very painful. But of course, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it makes sense now, thinking about it. I'll tell you the story. I'm a little bit embarrassed about this. But basically, back in around about, must have been about 2005, 2006, for whatever reason, and it's hard to imagine this now, but back in 2005, 2006, the property market was so buoyant that we were, any, we were just doing crazy stuff. And somebody offered me some properties in Romania. And I thought, well, that'd be an interesting addition to my portfolio. I'll have a couple. And so I put down a hefty deposit on a couple of properties in Bucharest. Now, I should have thought about this a little more deeply, and I'm a little bit embarrassed, but if it helps you, then this is all good. We can all learn together, learn from my mistakes. I'm not so proud that I can't admit to making the odd mistake. I've made many, and this is one of them, because what I didn't do, I didn't do my due diligence properly. I Because I knew the person who was selling the properties, and I kind of trusted them, and they'd always been good to their word, I didn't really think about it. I just said, yeah, I'll have a couple, as one does. And what I didn't look into was things like the rents, basic due diligence, the rent, the rent in order to sustain these properties was going to have to be something like double the average wage in Romania. Who on earth is going to pay double the average wage just to rent a flat? Ah, it was never going to work. As it was though, the credit crunch came along before these properties were even finished. They were sort of like, this is classic, you know, going against the reason model. Because not only were they abroad, but they were sort of new build off plan properties. So they didn't tick any boxes. And of course, the whole thing went horribly wrong. And I ended up losing a lot of my money. In fact, I lost all of that, that money, which I put down as deposits. But, 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 am I the only one? No, of course not. If you listen to Kevin McDonald, he says he was very happy to share all about his uh, experiences in Bulgaria where he found that his properties were being run by the mafia and all sorts of crazy stuff happened and he lost lots and lots of money as well. Our very own Mark Homer, he went off to buy properties in Florida. You may or may not know this, but this is why 
They talk about the A in reason, why Hal Robert Mark decided buying properties abroad was a bad idea. Because first of all, Mark went off to buy some properties in Florida. It didn't work out, luckily, so I don't think that actually sort of cost them too much. But the one thing which Mark did, a bit like Kevin did, is he went off and he bought a, a ski property in Bulgaria. The only person who ever used it was Rob, and he didn't even pay the rent. So there we are. So it didn't work out at all. So in terms of investments, we, we kind of say, don't buy abroad. The difficulties with buying abroad is it's a different legal system. There will be different ways of doing business in that country, which we may or may not understand. If you like local rules, you have to understand the local culture. Uh, the big one for me, though, is the currency exchange rate. You know, currency exchange rates are up and down all over the place, and that can make a massive difference, not just in terms of what you end up paying for the property, but if you end up with a mortgage on a property abroad, which, by the way, has its own uh, difficulties in arranging quite often. But even if you get the mortgage, you'll find that the amount you pay every month, for example, in the mortgage can go up and down and all that kind of stuff. So basically we say, don't touch it. Now, there is what I consider to be an exception to the rule, because we're talking about this very much in the context of buying a property to invest in. I'm going to confess to you, I do actually own a property abroad still, I own a property in Portugal, and it's somewhere which I love to go to. I often joke about sitting on the balcony tanning my legs when I can, because it's a lifestyle choice. And personally speaking, I don't see that there's any problem with a lifestyle choice, just so long as you realise it is a lifestyle choice and it's not an investment. I didn't buy my property in Portugal in order for it to be an investment, although it does actually produce a little bit of income. I rent it out. My When it's empty, I might as well let somebody else use it. Seems like a good thing to do, particularly if they're going to pay me a few quid for the privilege. And so I do make a little bit of income from it, but it's not an investment. It's a lifestyle choice. It's so that when I feel like it and when I feel like everything's just got too much for me here, I can just jump on a plane at East Midlands Airport and I can go and sit on the balcony and I can chill. And I can walk on the beach. And that's what I love doing. It's kind of like, I don't have any other luxuries in life. I don't drink. I really don't drink. That surprises a lot of people when you meet me at Masterclass. And they say, can I get you a drink when we go out for dinner on the Friday night? And I say, yeah, mine's a pint of water. They think I'm joking. But no, it really is a pint of water. Even better if it's got a slice of lemon in it, because that's good for you as well. And I don't smoke. And I don't really have any very expensive hobbies. I just kind of bumble along doing my thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Hopefully you don't think I'm a boring person, but I'm also a happy person. But my property in Portugal is really my only luxury. It's kind of my, like my hobby, and I just love going there. So that's a lifestyle choice. So would I ever buy a property abroad? Well, I have it's on several occasions. As an investment, I would never do it. But as a lifestyle choice, when you get to the point where you've got enough cash flow or enough equity and your property business is booming and you want to be able to do something similar, then why not do it? I would. I have. Next question. Do property investors specialise in one particular type of property? And should I? Well, this again, oh, wow, well, there's different views on this as well, which we can think about. I remember one of the things which struck me when I first came to Progressive five or so years ago was a big kind of banner, which had a, a picture of Mark Homer on it, and it had words to the effect of, Mark Homer says, focus on one thing like a laser beam. 
implying that we should probably specialise. But I know that Mark doesn't necessarily mean specialise in one thing to the detriment of everything else. The difficulty with specialising in just one thing is it is a bit like putting all of your eggs in one basket. But if you want to get good at something, you probably need to put most of your eggs in one basket. Notice I said most and not all. Because specialising in one thing or mainly specialising in one thing is going to make you very, very good at that one thing. But it does have its own difficulties. Before I came to Progressive, I specialised and concentrated solely upon buy-to-let properties. And, you know, nothing wrong with that. I did pretty well from it. I ended up with a sizable portfolio because I just got very, very, very good at doing buy-to-lets. I got to understand all of my different gold mine areas. I got to understand how to negotiate with the agents. I got to learn how to do all the figures so they stacked up and the properties could be uh, made to fit the BRR model so I could recycle my money out and use my money very efficiently. I got to know, I don't know, how to raise all the finance. And I got to know a lot about raising finance and I got to know a lot about all the different lenders out there and what they wanted and which type of property would fit, fit which type of lender and all this kind of stuff. So I got very, very good at it. And that was great until the credit crunch came. And if you've heard me talking at the Multiple Streams of Property Income event, you'll hear me talking about the, the day, September the 15th, 2008, when Lehman Brothers went down. And I realised that my goose was cooked for a bit. In fact, at that time, because I didn't know what was going to happen and I didn't know whether we were ever going to recover from what was the worst financial crisis in living memory and probably since the Great Depression. And it may even have rivaled the Great Depression, some people argue. I didn't even know whether we were even going to recover from it. And I knew that my one strategy of buy to let was going to be much, much more difficult to, to work, get, get it to work. Because why? Because the credit crunch came and the lenders weren't lending. And so they didn't want to lend on buy to lets. So my strategy kind of like died overnight. That's the danger of only having one strategy. So a progressive, we talk about having the 70 20 10. Basically, having three different strategies, and you put your time into each strategy in proportion 70, 20, 10. So, if you had like 10 hours, make the maths easy. If you had 10 hours that you could devote to your property business, maybe because you're starting part time, many of us do start part time, then you'd put seven hours a week into your main strategy, you'd put two hours a week into your secondary strategy, and you'd put one hour a week into your third or tertiary strategy. So you're kind of specialising in one, but you've also got the opportunity of developing two others at the same time so that your eggs aren't all in one basket, but they're mainly in one basket, if that makes sense. And you could sort of take it to a different level and not just think about time, but also resources as well. But time is a good way of splitting it up when you first start. And if you do that, you should be covering yourself and you should make sure that you won't get into difficulties like I did, where your one strategy just disappears overnight. By the way, is there a chance that no matter which strategy you do pick, it could disappear again overnight or was that a bit of a freak one-off? Well, I'd say it could happen because one of the things which we never, never sure about, for example, is the government could just bring in legislation. I know that there are people who are doing serviced accommodation in London, for example, and some London borrowers brought in the 90-day rule. Or it could be you're doing HMOs in your local area and then suddenly the local authority bring in Article 4 and you can't do HMOs or you can't do HMOs quite so easily, perhaps in a more accurate way of putting it. So there's always the potential, I think, particularly for politicians to meddle, which can change the way that we do a strategy or even stop a strategy. And of course, when the market's going to be changing the whole time. 
who would have foreseen a few years ago that there was going to be this whole Brexit thing, which is sort of, you know, really probably having a big effect on the market. But anything could happen. There could be another sort of financial crisis in Asia. And then that sort of spreads around the world. And we find that there's a financial crisis in Europe and America and all this kind of stuff. Contagion, I think it's called. That can happen. Who knows what's going to happen? The thing is, though, that if we've got more than one strategy, then we've kind of got a bit of a buffer against that. The key thing is, though, that even if you have your 70 and you find that your 70 doesn't work, hopefully, if you're involved with something like the progressive community, you'll be able to be adaptable. Why? Because you'll be rubbing shoulders with people who have different ideas and different takes on things and maybe know how to do things differently. And that would be great as well. So that should help you. So, yeah, there we are. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Do property investors specialise in one particular type of property? Should I? Well, the answer to that is probably no, they don't, or they shouldn't. And should you? Probably not. Do your 70-20-10. Specialise in a number of different types of property. And by the way, the idea behind the 70-20-10 model is that you don't get stuck rigidly with 70-20-10 for the rest of your property life. When your 70 is big enough, and when it's when you've got the processes and systems in place that the 70 can kind of look after itself, then you can maybe move your 20 up to being an, a new 70 so then you can have two 70s and a 20 and a 10. I mean, it obviously doesn't work in terms of time because you can't have more than 100%. But you know what I mean? You just have two main strategies then instead of one main strategy. Plus, you'll have two supplemental strategies. And that's how you can build your multiple streams of property income and how you can build them safely. So I hope that that helps. Next question. Do property investors sell directly or use agents? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Where can we go with this one? Stick with me, because I'm sure we can go somewhere with it. It's maybe not such an obvious answer as you may think at first sight. Do property investors sell directly or use agents? Well, the answer to that is both. Some property investors are going to sell directly. Who are they going to sell to? Well, presumably other property investors, but not necessarily if you're doing a flip you could be selling directly to an owner-occupier, potentially. Or do they use agents? Well, yes, but what type of agents are we talking about? Because there's so many different things we can think about. Again, I think the answer to this question is going to be, well, it all depends, and a lot of it's going to depend on your strategy and what you're trying to achieve. And ultimately, you need to do what's best for you. You need to do what's going to produce the best deal in the quickest amount of time or whatever it is that you think is important to you in the sale. But there's certainly scope to do all sorts of stuff. One of the things which I love about the more creative ways of doing property, for example, is if you can take control of a property using something like a lease option, then there's absolutely the possibility of having an exit, which is to sell onto a tenant buyer. So you could sell through an agent, and there are some agents, there's not many, but there's a few who understand this kind of stuff, who could help you line up a tenant buyer, who could then buy the property off you using another option. That's where the whole term about having a sandwich option comes from. You take control of the property using an option, then you send sell it on to somebody else using an option which runs parallel to your option. So you could have a tenant buyer. So would you use an agent? Well, as I say, you may not be able to because there's not that many who do it and maybe they're not doing it in the area where you're looking to sell the property. But you could certainly sell the property on to a tenant buyer directly. And that could be a great thing to do. It might may save you fees, you may be able to get a really good price for it. And the advantage of doing it with an option is you don't have to buy the property first before you line up somebody to buy it off you. Now, obviously, at some stage, you need to be able to sell them the property. So 
you may buy the property and then sell it to them instantly. Or you may just let them take over your option, but pay you some kind of a, a fee premium over and above your profit so that they can then take over your options. That could be a way of doing it. If you're doing deal packaging, you probably wouldn't use an agent. You would be the agent and you'd be selling properties on to other investors, probably. So yeah, you wouldn't use an agent for that. And you would be selling direct to other investors if you're doing deal packaging and sourcing. If I was going to sell some of my buy-to-lets, there'd be a whole host of things which I'd be considering. I'd be considering maybe selling the properties to owner-occupiers. Maybe if the tenants have gone and I do a bit of a refurb, if I really wanted to sell the property, and by the way, I'm, I'm not selling any at the moment, but if I did want to, I could then sell through an agent. Or I could sell the property to a, another investor. I could think about selling the whole portfolio to another investor. Or because all of my properties are held in a limited company, I could even sell the limited company either by way of shares to a number of investors or just sell the whole limited company onto one investor or another limited company. So I could certainly do that. Would I need an agent for that? Well, it all depends on scale again. There are companies out there who specialize in limited company sales. In fact, I had a letter just a couple of weeks ago from a company who was writing to me as director of my limited company, asking if I wanted to sell my property limited company. At the moment, I don't, but who knows, maybe one day I would, in which case I would certainly use a specialist, I could consider using a specialist agent to sell my limited company. So there's all sorts of different ways that we can think about this, and I don't think there's a hard and fast yes or no binary answer to this. It's all about achieving whatever it is you want to achieve. And again, your strategy is going to probably determine a lot of this and your future planning and what your exit is and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of things that we need to think about in that question. Let's move on. How quickly can I buy a house or an apartment or a dwelling? How quickly can I buy a house, an apartment or a dwelling? Well, if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that I've had a bit of a rant about this because it's probably going to take longer than you think. Even if you try and line everything up to do it quickly, it's probably going to take you longer than you think it should. And I don't know if I can even explain why this happens, but I've bought properties many times in the past where I've been buying for cash, so I haven't needed a mortgage. And because I've been buying for cash and haven't needed a mortgage, I've said to my solicitor, look, we won't bother with searches. I know the property. I know the area. You know, if it's in my goldmine area and it's in the same street and I've bought several in that street... I won't necessarily want searches for my own peace of mind because I know the area, I know what's going on there. I know they're not about to build a motorway through the middle of it or whatever. So I'll just say, look, we don't need searches. Let's just get an indemnity policy, you know, 60 quid or whatever it costs. And the solicitor's usually happy to do that. But even when I do that, it can still take as long as if I was going to get a mortgage and have the full searches. And I just can't explain that. I'm buying one at the moment, for example. I'm recording this in... December 2018, and I put an offer in on a property in September, which was a cash purchase with no searches, and I still haven't completed on it. And in fairness, there's been bits and pieces and complications with the title, which perhaps the estate agent didn't know was going to happen when they, when they, they put the property on the market. They, the, I'm not sure that there were any other bidders, to be honest. It's a property which is in my goldmine area, and it makes sense for me to buy it. I got it at what I thought was a very good price, but it turned out there were these complications. And although I had sort of sweetened the deal by saying I was going to do it for cash and I was going to do it quickly, 
the the reality is we're now what three months on and it still hasn't happened and i can't really explain that i know the estate agents pulling their hair out but the solicitors are just chewing it over and poking at it a bit and one day they'll get it together i spoke to my solicitor about it i say spoke in the loosest sense of the term we tend to communicate by email but she was quite encouraging about it she said well it should probably happen by christmas i have my doubts i think this could easily end up being like a four-month deal even without searches even without cash so there's no rhyme or reason to this. It is actually, in my experience, quite hard to make an estate, a, a, a solicitor, I'm trying to say. It's quite hard to make a solicitor move any faster than a solicitor wants to move. They always have their own ideas on it. And they don't appreciate you, even as the client, jumping up and down saying, please get on with this. So it's really hard to know. If you're going to buy a buy-to-let, for example, and you're going to take out a mortgage, you're going to have to make an application to the bank depending upon what the bank's up to and depending upon how much workload they've got on, it could sit on somebody's desk for several weeks. They've then got to appoint an evaluator to go out and value the property. That could take several weeks. In the meantime, you'd hope that your solicitor's going to be cracking on with things like sorting out the searches because your lender will want searches. But they may or may not be. Hopefully they are. So it's going to be rare that you'll do, for example, a buy-to-let in less than a couple of months and it's probably more likely it's going to be three or four months by the time it goes through. So you need to factor that in, particularly if you're going to do the BRR model and then do a refurb. So although we talk about the six-month rule and that you can't refinance your property within six months of buying it and all that kind of stuff, and by the way, the six-month rule isn't actually a rule, it's a guideline, don't forget. But regardless of whether it's a rule or a guideline, it doesn't make a lot of difference a lot of the time because it's probably going to be after six months by the time you get around to refinancing the property anyway. Now, of course, you can actually start the refinancing process before you get to month six, so that as soon as you're ready, you can pull the money down. But there we are. These things don't happen in a hurry. Property does not happen in a hurry. This is why getting wealthy in property is get rich quick slowly, as Rob Moore likes to say. And I totally agree. Get You can get rich, and it's probably quicker than doing it other ways, but it's not a particularly fast way of doing it. So good question. The honest answer to that question is, I don't know how long it's going to take you to buy your first house. I don't know how long it's going to take you to buy your second house, but it's probably going to take you longer than you think. So there we are. Sadly, that's just the system. Next question. Should I buy to let or should I sell? Should I buy to let or should I sell? Well, going back to the earlier answer about the 70-20-10, I would suggest that you do both. Consider doing both. We talked about our 70 20 10, thought about having a portfolio of strategies. One of the great things about buying to let is that you can steadily build a portfolio which is going to pay you cash flow. And that's kind of like your foundational wealth. It's not just going to pay you cash flow. If you're doing your due diligence and if you're buying in an okayish area, you're going to get capital growth as well. It might not be rip roaring capital growth, but over a period of time, you're going to get it. As an aside, doing masterclass the other weekend and somebody said to me over dinner do you do you buy up north still because you're not getting any capital growth are you and I kind of looked at them a bit because yeah I am getting capital growth I may not be getting rip-roaring capital growth but of course I'm getting capital growth and over the next 10 20 50 years there is going to be capital growth up north it just happens to be slower at the moment than it is perhaps down south interestingly though if you know where to look for your house price indices and you want to, and if you know where to look for the right information, you'll see that at the moment, actually, the reality is that property prices are increasing faster in the north at the moment than they are in the south. But there we are, the Daily Mail won't tell you that. 
on the on their front page. They'll just say the whole property market's about to crash because London's taking a bit of a breather. Not true at all. North is doing better. And Brexit aside, if things were to remain constant, probably the North would outperform the South over the next few years. Who knows, though, with Brexit and all that, anything could happen. So portfolio of properties, nice for cash flow, could also be okay for capital growth, grow your equity. But I would probably be thinking when I was putting together my 70-2010, maybe having a strategy in my 70-2010, which allows me to have chunky cash, lumps of capital coming in. So that could be commercial conversions, you know, depending whether you're just a, a novice, whether you're just starting or not, maybe commercial conversions might be a leap too far. But there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't do flips. So the question is, should I buy to let or sell? I would do both. I'd have a buy to let or income strategy. And by the way, it might not even buy, buy, be buy to let. It could be HMOs, it could be service accommodation, something like that. But I'd also have a strategy running alongside, which is going to give me the capital. So lumps of cash coming in. Why? Because any business depends upon cash flow to keep it going. And having chunks of cash coming in, if you flip a property every six months and make 25 grand or 50 grand, or if you're in London flipping properties, 100 grand or 200 grand or whatever it happens to be, it's good. It gives you cash in your business. But also when you go out to raise finance, when the bank looks at the accounts for your new, brand new limited company and you've got uh, cash coming in, lumps of cash like that, it's probably going to make you more lendable, even if you're doing your flipping in a separate limited company. As I said that, I thought, would you do that? Well, you probably wouldn't. You'd probably have a limited company for your buy-to-lets and you'd probably have a limited company for your flips, but it doesn't matter. The bank will just look at your whole picture and as you're a director, owner, shareholder, controller of both limited companies, then that's to your credit as well. So that would be good. So the answer is I'd do both. Have buy-to-lets or some kind of income strategy and also have some kind of chunky cash coming in strategy. Do both and that would be perfect. So anyway, great questions. I've got a few more to get through, which we'll try and sort of finish off uh, in a future podcast. Keep your questions coming in, though. If you want to ask questions, you can always find me on Facebook, tag me in, and uh, hopefully I'll pick your question up. But the progressive community is actually a very vibrant and active community, isn't it? So I don't always get to see all of the questions. But if I see it, I'll make a note and maybe deal with it in a future podcast. In the meantime, if you want to know more about me, please, please do come to my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk, and you'll find out more about me, Peter Jones, Charter Surveyor, all that stuff. You'll find my blog. You'll find some free resources. There's some free special reports you can download. There's also my paid resources like my ebooks. Come over and have a look. Loads of great information there. Until next time, though, until this time next week, when you come back for the Progressive Property Podcast. And I look forward to seeing you then. Here's to successful property investing. 